Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. And now, here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us Monday, November 21st, and it's Thanksgiving week. I don't know what you're thankful for. I'm sure many, many things. We have much to be thankful for in this country. But one of the things I'm most thankful for is our listening audience. Most thankful for, well, I'm very thankful for. I'm thankful for family. Thank you for uh, being in a country where we have the freedoms we have, and there's so much. But I'm also thankful that you're a regular listener, and I'm also very thankful that Alice, Andy, Joe, Sam, uh, Paul and the rest of the crowd, come on and make this program possible. We are listened to now. We're, there's so much listening going on to this radio program. It's probably one of the most talked about uh, programs. So I'm hearing from more and more people. We actually had someone tell me this morning that, Dave, he says, I can't afford to be on the program anymore. I'm getting too much publicity. I'm going, is that possible? So anyway, it's, we really appreciate all the guests that come on. And I'm really excited about today's hot topic. We have Aaron D. of Legacy Mutual Mortgage in down in San Antonio, Texas, who is um, going to be joining with us, talking about the transition from broker to banker. It's really interesting. There is a large number of people showing interest in this again. I have not seen this level of interest in a number of years. So we're seeing a lot of that activity. So we thought, let's get Aaron D. on here. She's gone through it. She understands it. Probably one of the most get into the weeds, cover the things that a lot of people don't think about. So I was really impressed when I've heard her speak several times, and we're really excited to have her on the program. Also, I want to just say that this podcast, again, is created by a mortgage professional. It is for mortgage professionals, and we are the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Award. Now, without further ado, live from San Antonio, Texas, we have Aaron D. of Legacy Mutual joining us. Aaron, so good hello. to have you here with us. So hello. And I Thank you. Have you? Because I've heard you speak, and I've heard the content in which you deliver. And there's, you, you usually speak with some really wonderful people up there, but there's something that when you start talking, it really comes through with some substance, and there's some meat on the bone. I always walk away with tons of notes anytime you talk. Kind of like all of the guests I invite on the radio program here: uh, Andy Shell and Alice and Joe. They just everyone gets great content. So we're excited about it. But Lena, for those that do not know who Aaron D is, let me talk a little bit about you. Aaron graduated from the University of Central Florida with a degree in Bachelor of Science and then in finance, a BS degree in finance. And then I just got the BS degree. I just got the BS. So I, uh, anyway, <laughs> and she also started out right out of college working as an underwriter. She has her 14 year career. She's been in many aspects of the mortgage industry, operations, sales, secondary, and technology. Her current role, and this is such a good title, Chief Strategy Officer for Legacy Mutual down in San Antonio. Dan Diepenhorst hires the smartest, best people, and he has found someone with Aaron D. So I hope I haven't embarrassed you here with that introduction, but it's uh, just I'm really blessing. good. <laughs> uh, really, it's a blessing to have you here. Really excited to have you, and happy Thanksgiving. Let's talk about one of the topics you are very articulate on, um, you know, many aspects of operation, but one of the reasons I was excited to have you come on the radio program was to talk about the operational aspects. A lot of people say, I want to go and make the transition for me a broker to banker. And again, Aaron, for a lot of our listeners that are listening, going, Dave, you know, why would we cover that? Isn't that topic dead? 
you would be amazed, folks, how many people are contacting us, myself and Andy, and many of us that provide these kind of services, broker-to-banker services, or de novo services. In other words, people getting into business for the very first time. And I think so many people say, as the, the broker-to-banker specific, well, I want to go make more money. Well, there's a lot more complexity about it, and that's what we're going to hear about today. And we want to get into that. So there are many factors to consider when making the B2B or the broker-to-banker transition. So let's start talking about the one of the favorite ones, the legal and the regulatory issues. What would be your recommendations when it comes to this area, other than have your heads, eyes open and be aware of what's coming? <laughs> so share with us your thoughts, yeah. Eric. Exactly. Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm very, very grateful that you asked me and very excited for the opportunity. Um, so, you know, talking about this topic, I would have to say my first and main recommendation is that somebody considering making this transition really, really needs to find a great experienced advisor and legal counsel. There are so many pitfall, pitfalls, uh, you know, that they can fall prey to. And, and if they're going to make this really big transition, they want to do it with their eyes completely wide open. And they want somebody there who's, who's seen other people's through it in the past and, and who can help them kind of maneuver through the landmines that are there. And there are some landmines out there. I think some one of the things I'm most impressed with, and I've got several companies that I've worked with who hired us to help them make that transition. And they decided after going through it, they go, you know what? I don't think we want to be a banker. We're really good originators. And they stayed there. And I think that's an intelligent decision. So let's talk about how does someone know if they are ready to make the broker to banker transition, how, how, how do they know? What are some things you'd share with them? to consider? Well, for, for me, I think you need to, to take a step back and take a really real look at your why, the why behind why you want to do it, and also your risk tolerance. That really goes into it as well. Mm, good point. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I think everybody, Andy, before beforehand even was talking about the potential for making higher returns, and yes, that's true, um, but that's going to come with much higher risk to your business, and you really, individually as a business owner, you're going to have to really expose, um, you know, your, your own personal finances and history and credit and mm -hmm. all of that. Um, you're going to have to, to take on a lot more risk personally, um, you know, so, so you have to determine, is, is that really risk that you're willing to take? Um, do you want to keep your business small and local? Do you want to grow it to a larger state or national presence? Or do you just want to grow it large enough to sell it off in a few years and then go, you know, go surfing on the, on the coast of Hawaii for the rest of your life? <laughs> Nothing wrong Great with that. Dream. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, so I think the answers to that why um, is really going to dictate the strategy that you employ. Um, but no matter what, you know, I personally think if, if you make the decision to do it, you just need to be ready for probably the most fun and fulfilling challenge of your life. It's, yeah. it's a lot of work, but this is such a, a great business. So, um, you know, making the decision to move into it really is a good one. That's a great one. And, you know, you're a chief strategy officer, so it really makes sense <laughs> to ask you this question. And what strategic considerations should someone make or should must they make is probably a better way to say it. Well, this is basically an endless list. Um, so I, you know, I could talk to a lot of points here, but um, I'll give you some of my most important ones. Um, so first, you're going to look at ownership structure, uh, especially where's your capital coming from? Uh, you know, do you really truly know the people that you're going into business with if you're not going to be doing it on your own? Do you trust them? Um, you know, what is that structure going to look like? Uh, what type of business are you going to focus on? Will you be primarily realtor, builder? Are you going to go after refinances? Will you be consumer direct? You know, really knowing who 
who you are and what you want to be. So you're not kind of out there going after lots of different things. You yeah. can truly focus on, on who you want to be. Um, and then what are your growth plans and how are you planning on recruiting new talent to your new company? Um, that's, that's definitely a big one. And really, you know, in light of current events and, and I think, you know, especially hearing from Joe, what is the economic outlook for your area and the country over the short and long term, you know, with all these market moves you've had recently in the volatility, um, you know, that, that might take, in, take into consideration for some people. And then you also want to want to look at obviously what product types can you offer, you know, mm-hmm. based on, on the structure you're going to have, can you offer the product types you want to? Um, how are you going to compensate your originators and, and um, your operations and compliance staff? Do you have an operations team or do you need to build one? Um, <laughs> and then, you know, what are your licensing requirements in your state? Some, they, they, you know, if, if you're going to be uh, doing a state license, that's going to really vary from state to state for what you have to provide. Well, you brought up Joe, so let's get Joe on this discussion. Let's toss the mic to Joe. Joe? Well, and that laundry long list that you just <laughs> went over is uh, is something that most of the guys that run broker companies have no no desire to do. You know, they're sales guys, right? And so uh, how does somebody, you know, that heads up a broker shop that wants to convert to be a banker, how, how does he need to lead this company in, in a manner that's a little different than what he's used to? Well, I think that's a really, really great point. Um, you know, just because you are that really, really great sales guy doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go and, and run a growing organization. Sometimes you just want to sell, um, and it, it does take a lot of hard work. Um, and really, at the beginning, when you're trying to build traction, that organization is going to need somebody who's a true visionary, who's a true leader. Um, you know, at a certain point, you're going to have to be able to inspire all of, all of your new people to, to do the really hard work that it takes to build that business. Um, you know, and once your company gets to a certain level, you're not really going to be able to lead and originate. So you need to take a real good step back. And are you okay with that? Um, you know, do you want to just be a sales guy? Is there a, do you know somebody that you can bring in that can lead the company for you so you can sell? Um, or are you truly okay with, with taking a step back from selling and, and being that visionary and leader instead? Yeah. Well, and then how do you take it uh, beyond? How do you grow it? What are your growth plans, recruiting talent? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it's definitely no secret that our costs to originate uh, compliant loans, they've been increasing and definitely putting a lot of pressure on margins. Um, you know, with the recent election, there is some talk about, you know, will any of, you know, Dodd-Frank be rolled back or anything? But I think, you know, it's a lot of noise right now. Um, there's The fact is today there's just a lot of costs there. Um, and with those fixed expenses that, that are required to operate as a, as a mortgage banker, you can only be profitable at certain origination levels. Um, so one of the things that you're really going to need to take a look at is understanding all all of the investments you're going to have to make and operate and then determine what your break-even volume will be and then put in place a realistic recruiting plan to bring new originators in so that you can survive in the long run. Yeah, well, in, in that recruiting, it's it's got to be a little bit difficult being a new entity coming in and, and you know, trying to bring people into this same mindset you have but what are the what are the the gotchas that go along with that because you're you're doing something that's uh, a little different yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think to your point, uh, a lot of times when brokers or originators go to become a, a mortgage banker, you know, they like they pull from the people they know, the people that they've worked with. So um, especially if you're looking to leave a current employer to start your own business, you definitely need to understand the comp agreements that you're under. Make sure you don't have any non-competes or anything right now. Um, you, you really don't want to find yourself in legal trouble that you didn't foresee uh, because you were recruiting originators or ops people from your old employer. Um, you know, another thing 
thing I think you really need to think about is, is how you're going to compensate your new team, especially on the ops side. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I've got to pay out these big salaries to get people. Well, really, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think you can attract some really, really great talent if you just give them the opportunity to reap the benefits of your growth. So do you provide a really strong profit sharing plan or even the potential for equity stake in the company down the road based on certain goals and metrics? Um, you know, that's going to allow you to attract people who are truly invested in the company and want to work hard to see it grow and who are not just going to stick around for, you know, for the short term. Um, you know, finally, going back to the culture point, I think it's great that so many segments on the show have touched on culture um, because that's that's super important and you need to make sure that you're you're fostering the correct culture. Um, I've seen it so many times where people go after that shiny object, the big originator um, who does a ton of business, but they don't look to see if that person is a fit into the culture of their organization um, and, and they can really get themselves into a bind with somebody who doesn't fit and can really destroy what you're building. Aaron, hey, it's Andy. Thanks for being on the program. Such great insight. <laughs> now I understand why you're the chief strategy officer. So many good points. So let, let's. we got this business. We're starting to grow. We got the team. We've figured out the contracts, and we've got some people coming on. So now what do we got to do? Well, you know, we want to make some money, right? We want to be profitable. So let's talk about profitability. So just big picture, how does a mortgage banker – make money, and then how do I translate that into my, my rate sheets moving forward? All right. Well, you are going to have two main sources of revenue. So you'll have your fee income, so your processing, underwriting fees, things like that. Um, and then you'll have the big one, which is the gain on sales from your loans. So this is where having a truly good advisor is going to come in handy. Uh, what they'll be able to do is help you with your competitive market analysis and truly understand where, you know, what fees your market will bear, uh, where market interest rates stand. And again, you know, this is an area where an experienced mortgage banker can really get into trouble without the proper execution and planning. There are so many amazing accounting firms, profit doctors out there um, that can that specialize in this area, um, and they can really help you evaluate the cost structure, what your target gain on sale needs to be. Um, and once you know all of that, then you can determine what your rate sheet would be. Perfect. Thanks, Aaron. I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about rate sheets, so that, that's bad. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's, no one better, there's definitely no one better to talk about it than the profit doctor. He does an excellent job. <laughs> Alice, let's get you in the discussion here. Come on in. Yeah, hi. So, hi, Aaron. So, hey. you know, this is a fun topic because obviously there's a lot of operational aspects to this that have to get planned out. So, once someone's kind of gone through the, the business plan and strategy to become a banker, um, what are some of the areas you've seen them overlooked? I know no one really likes to think about compliance, so I'm, I'm wondering what you've seen <laughs> in the areas <laughs> that people have a tendency to overlook as they go through this planning and strategy phase. Yeah, I mean, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I love. This is totally what, what gets me out of bed every day. You know, there there's so many things to do. So you have to work on building an operations team, a compliance team. Um, you have to choose and configure your LOS, your origination system. And then, of course, you have to look at your warehouse lines, your agency, and your investor approvals. Those are kind of the, the big ones. And so from an operations standpoint, what are some of the other important considerations, right? I mean, staffing's a big issue. We have several customers right now who've chosen to just have a variable cost model and outsource the entire operation. So I'd like to hear what you're seeing as you uh, help companies do this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, to me, the first thing is you have to have the people in your in, in your, your shop to be able to get the loans processed and underwritten and closed and sold. Um, so depending on the side of, size of your company, you're, you know, you may only have one or two people in each role. Um, you know, some things that are really important is you need to make sure that the underwriting staff that you hire is going to be designated, you know, has all the credentials that they need to work on, you know, VA, FHA, USDA, all those loan types that, that you want to offer. Um, but another thing is they need to understand your corporate strategy and risk tolerance. You need to make sure that, you know, as the owner, you know, your underwriting staff is truly in line with where you want to be from a risk standpoint. Um, you know, one thing that auditors, investors, warehouse banks, and really anyone and everyone who's going to be scrutinizing your business, um, you know, as you start and every year into the foreseeable future, um, they're going to want to see that there are clear lines of reporting um, that separate operations and sales whenever possible. Um, you know, I know that can be harder sometimes with smaller shops, but, but you really want to try to create those lines. You really don't want any appearance to anybody looking at your company that your origination staff is having any type of influence over, you know, underwriting, appraisals, things like that. So, so make sure you can keep those separate. Okay, so Aaron, so you just talked about an underwriter. So I don't have an underwriter today because I'm a broker. So I've got to go hire an underwriter. And you I think you said salary earlier. We got to work on our salary structure. So sounds like I'm I'm going to have some fixed costs that are going up. So now I've got to hire a staff, and I got to hire an underwriter because I want to be FHA, and I got to have a DE, and they're going to cost a lot of money, and you got to have them. And so, how do you advise someone making the broker to banker? transition to remain profitable with all these changes that are happening? You know, I, I think this is the classic chicken and egg. Um, you know, do you hire up in anticipation of volume or do you wait for the volume to come and then hire to, to accommodate it? Um, you know, I think it goes back to to your, um, you know, your recruiting and growth strategy. I've seen time and time again where one of the biggest reasons originators leave their current employer is because they're not able to get the service or turn times they want to grow their own book of business. And especially if you're going to get an originator to leave where they're at now um, and come take a, a chance on you as a new company, um, you're going to want to make sure that you don't let them down in that and that you truly do have the availability to to help them grow their business. I mean, that that's how you give your value to originators is help them grow their business. Um, so I'm really a firm believer of having that capacity to service new originators. If you don't have that from a profitability standpoint, then um, I suggest really building a bench of people that you want to hire as the volume comes in. It's a little bit more work up front, but then you have the ability to just pull people in as you grow instead of having a big delay. Yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly. We want to have variable costs, and this is going to be an awesome springboard to get Alice back in here in a second here. But So we're thinking about this. So what are some of the ways you found where executives are able to actually effectively deploy and create this, this scalable operation where they don't assume all these fixed costs at once? Yeah, and, and I think it does go back to Alice's earlier point where she has clients that are truly on a variable cost structure. Uh, you know, right now in, in our industry, there are so many service providers and other third parties who can offer that staffing assistance to you on an as-needed basis as you grow. You know, so if, if you just need a little bit of help for now until you can afford to make that next full-time hire, um, there are, I mean, MI companies can help out with contract underwriting. You know, there, there's no shortage of third parties out there that can help, um, and, and that will help to keep the cost variable while you're growing. Yes, so outsourcing is incredibly valuable, I'm going to add. <laughs> and there are only few companies that do it very well like we do. So, yeah, I do think that um, when people get started, you know, certainly you need kind of your process. But we've worked with companies who have 
you know, literally it's a 100% variable um, cost model. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts on outsourcing? Uh, we, we see it as a, as a great opportunity for folks to be able to grow and scale and keep it, you know, not that it's a one-off, it's a business model, part of a business model. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfectly viable um, business model. Definitely, if, the, if that's if that's kind of the structure that you built around, um, you know, you just do have to keep a couple things in mind. You know, one obviously is that as an extra layer of uh, due diligence and vendor assessment, um, I think we all know that that vendor due diligence is a very very hot topic. So just as long as you're on top of that and doing everything you need to do from a due diligence standpoint to protect your risk, um, but then I think you also need to look go back to the culture question and the strategy question and make sure that the service provider that you're working with um, has the same culture, the same risk tolerance, you know, works with you to create an experience where, you know, it doesn't seem like things are going out to a third party, that it's all part of, you know, the the all-inclusive experience of your company. Yeah, and that is something that's very critical to us. You know, we talk about that a company has to have the right mindset um, and for the outsourcing and that we as an outsource provider, it's important that we clone that, that we match philosophies and we do match and, and like you said, make it invisible to the customer. They don't know that it just went out to a third party. And so in all of that, you know, one of the things we do a lot of work on is compliance, right? This is the big one. So if I'm a, I'm a new banker, I'm a new broker and I make the transition from broker to banker, I think I know it all, right? I think I just have a few <laughs> extra forms that I, I know all about the forms in my application package. And, and we find companies are really surprised even uh, what the state is asking them to have in terms of compliance policies and procedures. Um, so what have you seen so far? What are the things you see people have a tendency to forget about? Um, well, you know, compliance, uh, and I think we do need to add quality control to this discussion. I think they go hand in hand. And, you know, chances are a lot of times as a new mortgage banker, you're not really able to afford a full-time compliance team or even just a compliance officer. Um, you know, so this is, again, where risk tolerance is really going to impact kind of how you choose to address your compliance needs. Um, what I've seen is, is many new mortgage bankers will tend to spread compliance functions across operational roles, underwriting and closing operations manager. I've even seen it before where sales managers had compliance. Responsibilities. Which, oh no, that's so loud, right? <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> I don't know about all that. You know, they need to call you if that's the case. They need your help. Um, you know, the, but really, what happens when you spread the compliance functions across like that? What you end up seeing is that nobody is making it their number one priority um, and their number one responsibility. So when it comes time to showing your auditors, your state investors, regulators that you know that you're doing everything you should be or that you're covering all your bases, you're not able to do it because no one person's really driving it. Well, they are responsible for pointing out a compliance officer in their policies who is that centralized person, right? Um, so I think that is something that they have to look at. Will be an overhead expensive, right? The whole too small to comply problem start to arise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, going back to third parties, this is really just where you can totally take advantage of some of the great resources out, out right now where, you know, if you can't if you can't pay somebody full time for that and for, you know, compliance and especially QC, um, you know, definitely reach out to a third party. Uh, you know, they provide excellent services and they can help you develop your policies and procedures, ensure compliance with reporting requirements. Humda, I think we all know, is a big one right now. Um, and they can conduct QC reviews uh, that are required by agencies, investors and all the reporting that goes along with it. Alice is the best at that. She does an amazing job at that, at that side of it. So, sorry, Andy, I had to jump in there. Go ahead, Andy. <laughs> well, you're right, Dave. She is. So, Alice said, or Erin, you said, uh, uh, too small to comply, too big to fail. 
So just so we're on the same page, as far as the regulator is concerned, there is no such thing as too small to comply. It doesn't exist. No matter how big you are, you have to comply with all the rules. And Alice has these really long policies, and you have to know everything about all of them. So, Aaron, we're starting. We've got one underwriter, two originators. We've got all this compliance stuff. What, what do we do to keep our costs down but also address our compliance needs and preserve you know, our operational costs in such a way so that we're, we're uh, profitable? Yeah, you know, I, I think, like I said, you can reach out to third parties, and then that really just kind of goes into what I think is the next logical topic in this conversation, which is uh, selecting and configuring your LOS. Um, this is something that is one of my favorite topics of all time. Um, you know, the, the right LOS is really going to help you serve those compliance functions so that you don't have to have a, a body going and doing a lot of these things. It's going to help you streamline all of your operations, build safeguards into your process, and, and really make it so that you can originate the maximum number of loans with the fewest number of bodies. Yes, exactly. And actually, we, uh, one, of, one of our team members spends most of their time configuring LOSs and helping people pick an LOS and make sure it's, it's installed correctly. So what do you, what are you, what is your recommendation for what a person should do when they are uh, considering an LOS? Uh, well, I think the first thing that you should think, uh, keep in mind is no matter what anybody tells you, nothing is truly out of the box. Uh, you are going to need to have a detailed focus on what you want your processes to look like. You're going to devote a significant amount of time into configuring your system, testing it. Um, it's really critical that, that this part is done right and done right up front um, and that you don't skip on resources. This is one area where I really think you need to make good investments. Um, once your system's configured, there are companies out there that will offer contract admin and ongoing support for your users. Um, they are excellent. I've worked with them in my past. Um, but you know, my personal opinion is I think you really need to have one person on staff who's dedicated to supporting your LOS, um, somebody that understands your business, that can be flexible, that, that, that truly knows who you are and what you're trying to do. Um, in some smaller companies, I've even seen the operations manager or their secondary staff assume this responsibility. That's actually how I got into working um, on my first LOS was when I was in secondary. Um, one thing I, I do think is important to know, and that I think a lot of people make a mistake in, is that you need a true mortgage person in charge of your LOS, not a tech person. Um, you have an IT staff, and they can support your needs, um, but you truly need to have a mortgage person driving that. Exactly right. And actually, in talking about outsourcing, this is one of the functions our firm provides is that we provide outsource encompass admin support or LOS support broadly and I agree with your timeline. So let's let's hit on that again. So how long should it take for LOS configuration and release when you're getting started and getting ready to launch? Uh, there's a ton of factors that are going to really go into that, but I wouldn't plan for a minimum of six months. It's really a big undertaking that you want to make sure to be serious about. Um, you know, and then once you have your LOS configured, you can also look into other add-ins. Um, I, will, I will throw Motivity out there. I think anybody who's serious about mortgage banking needs to really look at using Motivity. Um, but in general, you're going to be about six months for configuration. Exactly. <laughs> Joe, let's get you back in the discussion here. Joe? Aaron, we hadn't talked a bit about the thing that is probably most different to somebody who's been in the broker world and becomes a banker, and that's warehouse and warehouse facilities and and 
uh, agency uh, uh, and investor approvals. So uh, give us a little thought about that. Well, Joe, first I would like to say it's an honor to talk to you. My, my boss, Don Kalbacker, has spoken very highly yeah. of you, so it's, it's nice well, to be thanks. on the phone with you. Um, so really that's obviously a very important aspect of mortgage banking. Um, you know, If you don't have your own money to lend or investors to sell your loans to, you're truly not a mortgage banker. So, yes, that is definitely a very important topic. Okay, so what's first? All right. Well, first, you need to determine where you're going to obtain your warehouse lines. There's some really great providers out there. Um, you really need to find the one that's going to offer you the best terms and credit limit. Um, you know, the interest rate that they charge you, as well as the margin requirements uh, that they have, are going to be incredibly important to you um, because warehouse banks will only hold lines on your line for a specific and contractually predetermined period. This is where having quality loans comes into play. You don't want to, uh, you know, originate a loan and find out when you're trying to sell it to the investor that there's a lot of issues that you have to correct and it's on your line for way longer than your contract allows for. That's going to require, you know, a, a you know, margin call, things like that, so which could become very expensive. Um, so you need to make sure your operations team is focusing on quality loans for that for, you know, many reasons, but definitely warehouse reasons is one. Um, you also need to really be prepared to open up your entire personal financial profile to warehouse banks. They're going to want to see everything, um, all the dirty laundry. They're going to want to, uh, more than likely, they're going to need a, a personal guarantee or collateral from you. Um, and they're going to want to conduct a thorough, thorough risk analysis on you and the company before they agree to open a, a line for your company. Well, and that gets to that risk you were talking about early on, that some people just may not be comfortable with it. But Exactly. Right, so then the next thing, is, and you can't do much as a banker without having agency approvals and and people to sell loans to. So uh, uh, can you get into that part of it? Absolutely. So much like the warehouse approval process, you should expect a high level of, of scrutiny from agencies and investors. FHA, VA, and, and other third-party investors are going to want to see financials. They're going to want to see operational policies and procedures, compliance policies, resumes, uh, resumes and credit reports for the owners. And they're going to want to know what your QC process is. Uh, again, this is where reporting lines come into play as well. Each investor is going to be a little bit different based on their risk profile, but those are the most common requests that you're going to see. Um, if you're looking for approval for delegated underwriting, you may also need to uh, require or submit proof of delegation with other investors or a fixed number of non-delegated loans as test loans before they'll allow, um, allow you to underwrite fully delegated. Um, and then you have to be prepared to go through an annual research and audit process. So someone on your staff is going to have to go through uh, that annually as well. We have covered a lot of great information here, Aaron, and i just so grateful that you took the time out of your busy day and Dan let you do that. Uh, but I really appreciate it. Be sure to thank them, everyone. But let's, My pleasure. As we wrap this up, I can't believe we're at the top of the hour, but what are some other considerations we may not have discussed? Well, I think, um, you know, every mortgage banker, once they've been in business for a while, wants to become an agency direct seller, issuer. That kind of seems to be the next uh, holy grail. Um, so just a couple of things in, in thinking that, um, you know, first you want to take your net worth into consideration. Your agencies are going to want to see that uh, you can build and maintain a sizable net worth and the owners aren't just going to deplete it down to meet minimum requirements. Um, next is looking at servicing. If, can you, do you have the ability to, hand, to hold your own servicing? It's going to have very serious implications on your cash flow. Um, you can sell servicing on a flow basis, but that's a whole other level of approvals and integrations yeah. and work. Um, yeah. And then finally, don't expect to sell your loans, um, you know, direct right away. Your pricing is not going to be super favorable. So you will still use the aggregators for, you know, a time being. 
That is, there's just so much we could talk about. This could go on and on. And uh, I'm getting a lot of email questions in for our listeners. And for those of you that are, are emailing me, I go on. The best way to do is just, if you want to talk to Aaron, several people said, I want to talk to Aaron. I got it. How can I reach her? So what is your email address? Or is that the best way for people to get a hold of you? Absolutely. Um, email for sure. It's Aaron, E-R-I-N dot D-E-E at LegacyMutual.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us this week. It's so my excited. pleasure. It's really fun. Alice, Andy, Joe, thank you so much for participating in this really great interview. It's been a lot of great, a lot, lot of information here, and we really appreciate you listeners being here. Have a great week, everybody. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn by searching my last name, David Licken, or Licken on Lending. Have a great week, and I can't wait to see you back here soon. Thanks so much, everybody. See you back here next week. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening.